This is a book review of Against Calvinism by Roger E. Olson. Review by Lewis C. Midgley. Originally published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 4, 2013, pages 85 to 92. Read by Brad Haymond. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged. The journal and its website are credited and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com. The arguments in Roger Olson's Against Calvinism rest on his deep sympathies with the Dutch theologian Jacobus Arminius, whose followers were known as Remonstrants. Armenians traditionally qualify, question, or reject what is commonly known as five-point Calvinism, which is often but not necessarily summed up by the acronym TULIP, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance. Olson traces the versions of Calvinist dogmatic theology to which he objects back to the decisions made at the famous Synod of Dort, a gathering of Calvinist divines that took place in the city of Dort, or Dortrich in Dutch, in 1618 to 1619. Against Calvinism contains strong objections to some versions of Calvinism, or to what is known as Reformed theology, though not all of what John Calvin taught. Olson's objections are directed especially at recent aggressive manifestations of which he calls mere Calvinism and the tulip system. His protests against what is entailed in these versions of Calvinism should, I believe, be of interest to Latter-day Saints, whose faith is often criticized by zealots whose opinions are heavily influenced by various brands of Calvinism. Dutch Calvinists, somewhat like those who constitute the anti-Mormon element in the unseemly countercult industry, were ardent heresy hunters. The primary differences between the two are the absence of intellectual firepower among countercultists, and also the fact that Dutch Calvinists could and did make full use of the power of political regimes which they controlled to crush what they considered heresy. An example of their passion for persecution was their treatment of the famous jurist Hugo Grotius, an Armenian whom they sentenced to life in prison, though with the help of friends he escaped in a book chest and fled to Paris. Later, the Synod of Dort was anxious to quash the Armenian remonstrance through the setting out of what were believed to be their heresies. The eventual result was, Olson claims, what is now known as five-point Calvinism. See pages 40 to 41 for his account of the famous Synod. However, the acronym TULIP was fashioned much later, first appearing in American newspapers in 1913. Subsequently, TULIP has become a kind of benchmark of presumably authentic Reformed theology for many scholars and preachers. Put another way, not all Calvinists against whom Olson remonstrates in Against Calvinism necessarily employ the TULIP acronym, or, from his perspective, display all the errors and excesses that clearly trouble him. Olson considers Calvinists of whatever brand to be Christians, though he winces because not all Calvinists return the favor. He can, quote, worship with Calvinists without cringing, close quote, and he considers them, quote, a part of the rich tapestry of classical Christianity, close quote. Although he does not oppose all of Reformed theology as such, 
he is strongly against those he calls high Calvinists. That is, quote, those committed to the entire tulip schema, close quote. Besides opposing high Calvinism, he objects to the pugnacious, quote, new Calvinism celebrated by Time magazine as one of the ten great ideas changing the world right now, close quote. He argues that Tulip does not accurately or fully describe Calvin's views or even the theology of some and perhaps many of those who have been his disciples. Hence, Olson does not object to all of Reformed theology. He argues instead that this venerable theological tradition, apart from what he considers its more objectionable elements, is in his estimation clearly Christ-centered. Latter-day Saint readers should be aware that Olson does not allow that their faith is Christian, despite the fact that it is profoundly Christ-centered. This seems odd to me, and I have dealt with this seeming anomaly elsewhere. Some contemporary Reformed scholars avoid Tulip entirely, while others use it to describe the very core of Reformed theology. In addition, many of those in the unseemly countercult industry advance strident, rough versions of Reformed theology, in which elements of tulip are driven home with force. Perhaps pugnacious people have a proclivity for harsh versions of Calvinism. In addition, those who maintain that God predestined some to salvation, the predestined elect at the moment that everything was created out of nothing, always turn out to picture themselves as elected, and all those who do not share their opinion were passed over when justification was determined. These folks are often busy trying to spot signs of works righteousness among those not so fortunate. For this and related reasons, the gentle Richard Mao, who affirms Tulip, admits that he finds it harsh and those devoted to it highly contentious and quarrelsome, rather than kind and loving. Contentious Calvinists are, it seems, part of Calvin's somewhat ambiguous legacy. Olson insists that, Renowned scholars of the Reformed tradition both define and describe it very differently. Hence, what he calls the high and the new varieties of Calvinism are treated by him as a subset of Reformed theology and are seen as merely branches of a larger Reformed tradition. Since Calvinists of all stripes stress divine sovereignty, Calvinists also commonly insist on predestination and meticulous divine providence, but, according to Olson, within this commonality, there, quote, exists a diversity that often gives rise to debates even among Calvinists, close quote, which is clearly the case. What he also calls mere Calvinism or garden variety Calvinism is not, he insists, tightly linked to Calvin. Why? Quote, what we usually call Calvinism today includes some elements Calvin himself did not emphasize if he believed them at all. Olson thus strives to save Calvin from at least some, or perhaps from many, Calvinists. Latter day Saints who have encountered tulip spouting countercult critics of their faith will, I am confident, agree with Olson that God must be seen as the standard of moral goodness and the perfectly loving source of love. The Calvinism against which Olson remonstrates tend to, quote, confess that God ordains, designs, controls, and renders certain the most egregious evil acts, such as the kidnapping, rape, and murder of small children, and the genocidal slaughter of hundreds of thousands in Rwanda. They confess that God sees to it that human sin, 
and they confess that all salvation is absolutely God's doing, and not at all dependent on free will decisions of people, and that God only saves some when he could save all, assuring that some large portion of humanity will spend eternity in hell when he could save them from it. Close quote. In this and other instances, Olson expresses moral outrage at the God often pictured in Reformed theology. He does not, however, wish to be seen as rejecting Reformed theology as such, or even all of what is commonly known as Calvinism. He objects instead primarily to what is set forth in the notorious TULIP acronym. Olson's complaints against Calvinism ultimately rest on what he terms conundrums, which are, for him, logical puzzles that lie somewhere between mystery and contradiction, or paradox, and that need to be solved. Whereas mysteries like the Trinity are for him acceptable, contradictions are not. Conundrums jar the mind, he says. They, quote, appear at times like contradictions, although they are not formal, logical contradictions, close quote. He strives to demonstrate that Calvinism is replete with conundrums. If the radical divine determinism entailed in five-point Calvinism is taken seriously, God is dishonored on moral grounds and his good name impugned. According to Olson, this is done for no good reason. Despite the heavy hand of Augustine on the Reformation, neither logic nor the Bible requires it. I am in full agreement with Olson on these matters. What Augustine bequeathed to the Protestant Reformation has led its theologians to deny what the saints call moral agency. Those in debt to Augustine, of course, celebrate what they call free will. They insist that the human will is free to do as one desires. But they also insist all desires are strictly given to human beings, and hence are firmly determined by God. So, from this perspective, one is merely free to do what one was predestined to desire. This is clearly not what the saints know as moral agency. The Augustinian legacy has thus, it seems, led Calvinists to picture human beings as puppets in the hands of an all-powerful, inscrutable first thing that created everything, including both space and time, out of nothing, and that, in a full sense, caused everything including even the moral evils that humans encounter in this often troubling fallen world. Insisting on divine sovereignty in such a very loud voice may end up actually demeaning the divine. This problem seems to me to stem from a fascination with what is now sometimes called classical theism, where what is attributed to God makes it impossible for him to be loving, gentle, and merciful. But most conservative Protestants, despite the abstract distant figure sketched by classical theism, when they face evils in this disconsolate world, end up pleading with a God who is not passive, but fully passionate, and both can and will listen and respond to those who genuinely turn to him for mercy and consolation, as well as hope beyond the miseries of this world and of the grave. But Protestant theologians, it seems, by either challenging or rejecting Calvinism, risk being accused of an affront to the dignity of the divine, as well as of believing in dreaded works righteousness. Protestants, it seems, often genuinely fear this possibility, and their anxiety in this regard has been shaped by a long history of heresy hunting, which once led to bold persecution when the force of nation-states could be employed. 
all of this in addition to classical theism and the great ecumenical creeds lurks behind or flows from the tulip ideology against which olson now remonstrates it should be clear that i admire olson's historical scholarship i have urged the saints to consult his books which include the following some of which i have previously reviewed favorably twentieth century theology god and the world in a transitional age the story of christian theology twenty centuries of tradition and reform the trinity though i have not published a review of this book i have often recommended it to latter-day saints who are often faced with critics who seem to spout the sibylian or modalist heresy at least when they attack the faith of the saints the mosaic of christian belief twenty centuries of unity and diversity the westminster handbook to evangelical theology armenian theology myths and reality pocket history of evangelical theology and pocket history of theology i am impressed by roger olson's historical scholarship and i am pleased to recommend to latter-day saint readers his impressive against calvinism which is a useful book for all those interested in one of the contending versions of historical and contemporary protestant dogmatic theology this has been a book review of against calvinism by roger e olson review by lewis c midgley originally published in interpreter a journal of mormon scripture volume four two thousand and thirteen pages eighty five to ninety two read by brad haymond for more information please visit mormoninterpreter.com